from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Candace Watts-Smith. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, we are talking with Mary Stuckey, a professor of communication arts and sciences here at Penn State, and author of a new book called Deplorable, The Worst Presidential Campaigns from Jefferson to Trump. And in that book, um, Mary takes us on a real tour de force through the history of presidential campaign rhetoric and and how that has shaped the, the course of those elections. And, you know, I think aside from listeners of this show and other political podcasts, the vast majority of people really only pay attention to politics every four years when the presidential election comes around, or that's when their their attention is most focused on politics. So that's why it's kind of important to take a look at what's being said here and, and how it really shapes the course of politics throughout history. Uh, yeah, uh, Jenna, it, it, it is a tour de force. She goes through, uh, it goes through lots of campaigns up through 2016, even 2020, a little bit, uh, with, with a focus on what she refers to as deplorable or despicable language. And uh, we could we could allow her to explain that herself uh, during your during your interview. But I, I think your point is well taken. That this is when people are paying attention. And Mary's point is this is when some of the language gets really anti-democratic and uh, and hurtful. What I appreciate about Mary's book and just Mary as a scholar is that she invites readers to provide other examples, right? So yeah, she focuses primarily on presidential campaigns, but you know, the fact of the matter is that we see this kind of language across the you know partisan aisle, across time, um, and at different levels of governance and, you know, of, of government. I think, you know, for me, just the idea of looking at what people are saying matters. You know, I think we kind of all have grown up in the sticks and stones will break our bones, but, you know, names will never hurt us. But in politics, they do. Words matter, um, especially when they come from a place of authority and power, right? They, we've seen these play out abstractly. We've seen them play out in real ways over over the past few years, especially because those are the examples that we can think of, but certainly over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Candace, I think one of the points that Mary makes uh, really quite well is that the idea that candidates, elected officials are making it okay to speak this way is, uh, is significant. And, uh, you know, sometimes uh, Trump's uh, appeal has been described in in terms of saying out loud things people wish they had always been allowed to say out loud but felt like they weren't able to and uh, there's a strong element of that in here and you know what i think one of the things that comes out is that none of what we're seeing is inevitable much of it is strategic and we've seen upticks in anti-asian american and pacific islander you know towards um, th th those Americans, violence against them, violence uh, against uh, Latinx, you know, immigrants. I'm thinking about the mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, um, you know, Asian Americans in Georgia, but beyond, right, because of Trump's rhetoric toward COVID, um, threats to the lives of governors. I mean, you know, this kind of incendiary rhetoric of political leaders, um, you know, we've seen the kind of effects of violence out of that rhetoric too. 
Mary Stuckey really just kind of really makes clear that it's not that we're seeing more deplorable campaigns. We're not seeing um, it, we're not seeing anything new, but it a, a reading of history and a looking back, we see patterns. We see patterns of exclusionary language. We see patterns um, of encouragement of authoritarian procedures. We see patterns of um, rhetoric that constrains who is, uh, you know, understood and treated as first-class citizens and as Americans. Um, and it's when we look through a longer lens of history, we can see um, one that the, this isn't new, but two. Um, that we haven't learned our lesson, or maybe we have learned our lesson, which is that this kind of rhetoric works mm -hmm. to turn out certain kinds of voters with certain aspirations, visions of um, this country, um, you know, and and what that, you know, what their view is for um, our future, mm -hmm. you know, in in the U.S. But what has changed is the technology, the the sort of periods of deplorable language or deplorable discourse tend to happen when there are new technologies or when old technologies are used for new purposes. Uh, so there's clearly some kind of interaction there that's going on in terms of, of you know, how, how we learn about what's going on in the world and what's, what's going, on in a, going on in a campaign. Yeah, and we, uh, I think we'll we'll talk more about media in the the interview. You're right, Michael. That is part of the the framework that Mary lays out for what makes a campaign deplorable or not. Um, but I think that that is a good place to head to the interview. So let's go now to the conversation with Mary Stuckey. Mary Stuckey, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so there is a lot to cover in your book, Deplorable. Um, it really is a, a tour de force through history. Um, but I thought we might just start with with a bit of framing. Um, can you tell us what, wh how you define deplorable and, and what it is that makes a campaign deplorable? That's a really great question. Um, of course, the book started... Um, shortly after the 2016 election and arose largely out of frustration I had that people kept telling me how um, Trump was uniquely terrible and the only, you know, the worst thing that had ever happened and we'd never seen anything like this. And of course, anyone who studies either political science or history or the history of rhetoric as I do is like, wait, what? No, we've had plenty of terrible people, um, which is a difficult thing to also argue when you are a fan of democracy, right? That there is this real tension between acknowledging the horribleness and also um, having something that looks like faith in the system. And so this book really arose out of um, a need to address that tension in a way that felt reasonable. Uh, the word deplorable is obviously a nod to Hillary Clinton's use of the basket of deplorables in the 2016 election, um, but also the subtitle, right, is the worst presidential elections from Jefferson to Trump. Um, and there is an argument that could be made, right, for every election to be deplorable. 
you know, you you set out um, several elements that comprise a, a deplorable election, perhaps as a way to to make sense or, you know, somehow categorize these these elections or, you know, put them on a, on a scale from from best to worst or somehow make sense of them. Right. Can you walk us through um, what what those elements are and maybe even how how you decided what they should be as you were thinking about how to, to, to categorize all these campaigns? So I want to make it one thing super clear at the beginning, which is that a deplorable election isn't deplorable because of who won. I'm not even remotely interested in the partisanship questions. There's been plenty of terribleness on all sides of the partisan aisles because, of course, the party system isn't always just two sides. Um, so I think there's plenty of terribleness to go around. And I'm interested in questions of democracy, not questions of partisanship. Um, and that I, that's really important for me to um, underline at the get-go for all kinds of obvious reasons. Um, and so what makes an election deplorable then is not who wins. It's the kind of anti-democratic language that gets circulated. And that language is always floating around in our politics I chose elections because those are moments in which everyone's paying attention and because they're bounded in time, right? So they're super studyable. Um, but the language itself is what creates a deplorable election. And it's what I call despicable discourse. And it's despicable because it's um, overtly or um, implicitly exclusionary. Um, it serves anti-democratic ends. Um, it's often grounded in a particular kind of fear appeals. And it sometimes um, suggests that citizens have no power to affect the outcome and that power should be ceded to the government. And so there's all kinds of different ways in which it functions um, to create a, a less healthy democracy. And those are the kinds of things that render an election deplorable. Yeah. So you you mentioned 2016, uh, and and you're right. There has been a lot of of commentary and discussion um, about that election, including a lot on this show. So I don't want to necessarily rehash that. Let's let's pick a different example further back in history to to, to help solidify some of these concepts. Um, one of the things that particularly struck me, one of the the campaigns you covered was uh, 1924. Can you walk us through what what you saw as as deplorable? What was the the despicable discourse in that campaign? So 1924 is a really interesting campaign. Um, and, and it's one in that, of course, everyone I'm sure is massively familiar with and just has the details of that campaign right at their fingertips. Um, it is a campaign in which uh, the Klan, the Ku Klux Klan was so prominent across the nation that not a single national politician could make a sustained argument against the violence of the Klan. Um, there's this, a lot of really good work on the second um, version of the Klan, you know, in the 1920s, how it um, becomes almost this weirdly civic organization. You know, they had picnics, uh, which is just an image that I, I've never been able to get out of my head. Like, what was it like to go to a Klan picnic? Um, and the so many 
members of the Klan were present at Madison Square Garden at the Democratic National Convention that they called it a Klan bake. Um, and they were unable to actually pass a resolution in that convention against the violence of the Klan. Um, one of the potential candidates for the Democratic slate, uh, William McAdoo, um, when he got nominated, the crowd started screaming, you know, Ku Klu, Ku Klu McAdoo, which is actually harder to say than you would think. Uh, and the, so that that kind of baseline of um, overt racism that structured the whole campaign uh, definitely marks that one as uh, deplorable. So that was actually one of the easier calls to make. Mm -hmm. And um, there's also, I, I think you, this is, this is a theme that goes throughout the book, certainly present in, in 1924, but even back to some of the, the campaigns and, and elections leading up to the, the civil war, there's this unwillingness from the candidates and just those in power in general to denounce the anti-democratic forces in the, you know, in, in 24 it was the the KKK, but going back, it was the, you know, the, the pro-slavery South, right? So can you talk more about how that plays in the, you know, sort of um, refusal to confront some of these anti-democratic forces in the campaign? Yeah, there's two really important pieces of, um, of, of literature that come out of political science on this. And one of them is Deep Roots right, which is a, just a wonderful book in a super depressing way, because the argument that those authors make is that um, it's that, that there are moments at which communities make choices. And if you choose an anti-democratic road, uh, it becomes very difficult to change that path. There's also literature coming out of political science that indicates that there are moments um, where there are <clears throat> some kind of political rupture where change actually becomes possible. And elections, by definition, are potentially ruptures, right? So there's both real positive possibilities that can come out of these moments and really quite negative ones. And my favorite example here is Nelson Rockefeller, right? Because in 1964, when Goldwater is running, um, and there's charges, there's so many charges of racism. And Jackie Robinson says, you know, who was a delegate to the Republican National Convention, um, remarked very specifically on the racism he encountered and saw um, at that moment. And Nelson Rockefeller, a moderate Republican, made a very clear argument that and told the Republican Party, essentially, do not go down this road. If you go down this road right now, it is going to be very, very hard to come back. And the Republicans boot him off the stage. And yet that moment where they acted in this aggressive, um, very ugly kind of way toward Nelson Rockefeller um, helped highlight the dangerous rhetoric. And of course, you know, Goldwater had his own sets of issues around that that didn't help at all. But Rockefeller by acting out, because we, the other thing that comes out of political science is that we know that when elites point to certain kinds of discourse and say, that's racist, that's undemocratic, and make that argument, people listen. Um, and it makes the dog whistle politics much more difficult. And so in 64, Rockefeller makes that claim. 
in 68, when Richard Nixon invents the Southern strategy, and instead of being the Goldwater fan, the Goldwater supporter, um, overt kind of racism, does a much more polite, um, coded version of that. Rockefeller, who knows exactly how this is working, there's an over 80 page memo in the Rockefeller archives on the Southern strategy, detailing it. Rockefeller absolutely had access to this information and he stays silent. And that starts the Republican part. I don't know if he'd spoken out, he could have actually single-handedly changed the course of how that goes, but his silence is very much, and the silence of all moderate Republicans, is um, they are absolutely complicit in the direction that the um, discourse in this country has taken since that moment. Kind of another theme that that comes up throughout these elections is the the presence of third parties. And this is one where, you know, I know some people in, in political science sort of point to this notion of we need more parties, you know, having having a third party might help strengthen democracy. There's those types of arguments that are out there. But um, I think if, if I understand your argument correctly, you see it as, you know, the the elections that have third parties tend to be more on the, the deplorable side of things. Can you talk a little bit more about where where third parties fit into this, um, you know, how, how you're thinking about campaigns and elections. Yeah, that's such a, it, it's a mess. Um, what I'm thinking actually is, is confused in my own brain because at some moments it's really clear that having third parties out there um, provide an outlet for this discourse and give it a platform and allow more attention. But then it's long, like the Dixiecrats, right? Um, actually become a focus for some really ugly rhetoric. But then when the main parties say, oh yeah, no, you're just a, you know, you're just a minority party. We're going to stuff you in the corner. Then they get like some attention, but also they get treated as a despicable minority and dismissed. And so there's a utility (laughs) to that, but also they're giving it a voice but they're giving it a small voice, so it's an easily dismissible voice, but maybe that voice will you know, capture a large party. So one of the things that um, opens the door to deplorable elections is a lack of faith in the system. A strong system where people believe that things are fairly equitable, where people believe that the process is fair, um, and, and often white people are believing this, right? Um, those elections, um, when the system is strong, then it's easier to push back um, despic- over racist discourses. Now, this is itself problematic, right? Because the 1950s, every, everyone, all the white people were like, yes, the system's totally fair. And all you have to do to believe that is ignore Jim Crow. Um, And so it really depends on who we're talking about seeing the system is fair and how much power they have. But it is very clear to me that the less legitimacy a system has, the system has at any given time, the more likely it is that people will start listening to despicable discourse. And, you know, you bringing up the the 1950s there, I know you sort of cite 
the the campaigns of that era as examples of of what you describe as traditional campaigns i'm wondering if you could talk just um, more about what that means and also like who defines what traditional is or i think we can all if you ask people on the street they could probably conjure some image of what they think of as a traditional election but you know, where where do those things come from this is really interesting because I gave a little talk to somebody's class over the summer and the 19 year olds in the class kept saying, you know, I just wish that we could go back to the days when, you know, and I'm like, when were those days, right? Point me to a moment. And they got very frustrated and annoyed with me. And one of them said, look, I'm 19 years old. And I'm like, well, okay, fine. Be ignorant, but don't also claim I can't pick a moment when this is true, but I know it was true, right? And I did not get a lot of love in that class, um, which is fine, right? But there is this notion we have that sometime back in the past, you know, politics were functional and they worked and everyone got along. And yes, that's absolutely true. If you ignore the fact that in the 1950s, Eisenhower was terminating the sovereignty of Indian nations, Jim Crow was operative, you know, women weren't exactly, you know, what I would call equal citizens with men, um, right? And so if you ignore certain kinds of systemic inequalities, then yeah, that's a super traditional election. Um, and of course, the trick there is that those inequalities are baked into our constitutional system. And so who do we blame for discourse that becomes um, despicable. And I, you know, and yeah, it's more likely that white people will exercise, and it is almost always white people who exercise despicable discourse. Um, and they're more likely to do that when they, when the economy is bad, when they feel threatened by immigrants, African-Americans, other people of color, when they have perceived cultural threats um, this is where the fear appeals that I talked about before tend to come in. So the more secure white people feel, the less likely they are to exercise exclusionary discourse, which is you know, not super surprising. Um, but there are also ways that you can discuss inequality, systemic inequalities without resorting to fear appeals. Um, and those ways are preferable to the ones that I'm styling as despicable, which doesn't mean that I'm sort of like, yay, traditional elections are perfect. Let's just ignore, you know, black people. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess have we have we figured out how to do that though? Are are there 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 moments or or points in in campaigns you can think of where we have talked about the about systemic inequalities in a way that does not resort to those those fear appeals? So the closest I can come in the modern, and by saying modern, I am, of course, revealing my age rather than yours, um, in, in the modern sort of world, right, um, would be Franklin Roosevelt. Um, and Roosevelt, it should be, I need to underline, was not great on issues of race. Um, he was much better, interestingly, on issues of gender than, than he is often given credit for. The 1930s were a really super interesting decade that way. Um, and he was bad on race. I mean, 12 years in office, not a single civil rights bill. So I'm not holding him up as a, 
a model of this, but he did talk about um, class inequality. And the metaphor that he used was that of the neighborhood, which if you think about neighborhood as geography, we can see how that could be super problematic. But he didn't. He talked about neighborhood as, um, you know, the whole nation was a neighbor, that we needed to think about things in communitarian and specifically because the Civil War is still a thing, even in the as late as the 1930s. He was worried about sectional differences. He had concerns about urban-rural divides um, and very much, of course, about class questions. And he dealt with all of those through the metaphor of the good neighbor. And he could use religious um, uh, metaphors and references that are probably impossible because he was very overtly Christian and that gets trickier now. But there are metaphoric possibilities um, to talk about community and to put things in a communitarian rather than individualism frame would be a great place to start, whether neighborhood is your metaphor or not. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the, the things, and this is maybe a, a fear appeal in and of itself, perhaps, is, you know, people out on on the stump sometimes talk about that the fate of our democracy is at stake here, particularly in the time since 2016. I think we, we've heard that a lot. I mean, you go back um, to, to 1800 and, and sort of talk about, no, that was a time when actually the fate of democracy was, was at stake. So can you, um, refresh our memories on, on that? And then, you know, how to think about some of these more recent claims about democracy being at stake in a particular election, you know, compared to what was happening back then? Sure. I mean, at least we haven't had a duel on the floor of the House, right? So there's something to be said for dueling no longer a way of managing political differences. Um, I had, you know, in, in this class that I referred to, one of the students was talking about this is the most polarized we've ever been. And I said, well, there was a civil war, right? So there have been moments where we have been more fractured than we are. Um I fear appeals are tricky, right? Because if you say the assault on the Capitol on January 6th, January 6th threatens democracy, you are not wrong, right? <laughs> um, insurrections are generally considered bad for democracy. And I'm not going to say democracy is not at stake. So sometimes fear appeals are not bad. You know, um, I think the example I use in my book is alarm calls are great. And if you are an Impala and there is a lion nearby, you know, a fear appeal is not a terrible idea. So the question then when you're thinking about politics is when is it really a lion? And when is somebody saying, oh, look, lion, in order to get you to put them in power? And those are very different questions, right? It took Franklin Roosevelt years to convince the American people that the Nazis were a threat. Um, And he used some fear appeals that were pretty sketchy. Um, And sometimes he did things that were a little less than completely honest. Um, But was he wrong? No. Does that make his appeals okay? It's not super good for democracy. And so if your question is really what's good for democracy, then you have to be very serious about what constitutes a threat to democracy. Like what do threats look like? 
And those are questions that I think are the most interesting questions that people are talking about today, right? And many of the people that have been on this podcast, right, are actually working very, very hard to specify this is a danger to democracy for the following reason. And a lot of the um, things you sh- that I think are important there are you have to be able to give reasons, right? This is a threat to democracy because, um, because that's kind of how democracy is supposed to work on an argumentative level. And and this is maybe maybe a good place to to start to to wrap things up. So you end the book sort of making the argument that things can change. We don't necessarily have to accept that deplorable elections are are inevitable, but only if people demand it. And I'm just wondering if there are any examples you can can point us to from history of of times when people did those things or, you know, anything we can look to as as a model of, you know, what types of change can come about when, when people do sort of step up and, and demand more or perhaps different things from the people who are, are running for, for office? Yeah. Um, this is a really interesting question because one of the things, I want to go to a big principle rather than a small example, if I can there, because one of the things that seems true to me is that almost every president even if they got elected on despicable discourse, when they begin to govern, start to govern as president of all the people, which doesn't mean that like Richard Nixon became a saint, right? When he got elected, not going there, Um, but that he did, um, however, duplicitously, you know, made more um, inclusive kinds of arguments as president, that there was something about taking that office. And that one of the things where that things have gone sort of spiralingly wrong is that if one person in one election engages in despicable discourse and there isn't a follow-up in the next election, that discourse can get pushed back to the margins. It's when we don't challenge it and when we allow it to happen and one person after another does it that it becomes normalized. And so I think the choice is to say, in this particular instance, in our particular moment, Trump cannot be normalized, right? Like we have to not let that happen again. And I'm not talking there about his policies, but about the the tactics he used to get elected, the demeaning, the gendered, the racism, you know, those things. That if the Republican Party has a responsibility to say, we're not going to do that anymore. Um, So far, they have not, (laughs) I think, accepted that responsibility, except one or two people here and there. Um, But this is also a problem that white people created. And I think it's super important that white people become the people um, who make it stop. Right. We cannot put this on the people who are most damaged by this discourse. Right. No, totally. Um, one that that made me think of of one last question here. So um, I know you are primarily a scholar of, of presidential history and, and rhetoric, but um, have you thought at all or or considered how this despicable discourse 
trickles down, whether it's to state governments or, you know, any anywhere else other than, you know, how far down does it go from from the White House, so to speak? You know, I can't decide if it goes down or comes up um, <laughs> because a lot. I mean, I'm a huge, uh, huge advocate of people paying attention to the local. I think um, the Democratic Party in particular has put so much faith for so many decades on the president will save us that um, the neglect of the down ballot is a huge freaking mistake. Um, that if you want to control the politics that matter most in your life, you control the local politics, the state politics, um, and from then Congress and you know the presidency. A strong Congress can actually, you know, Donald Trump did many of the things he did because the Republicans in Congress did not stop him. Um, Congress has the power to make changes. So electing people at that level um, and a lot of the toxicity, um, which I think is obvious in, you know, all kinds of ways is county level. If you look as, as many people on your podcast have, right, if you look at state level data, it's ridiculous to talk about red states and blue states. It's counties that matter, right? It's the localities. And the toxic stuff that breeds there, um, it, which isn't necessarily Democratic or Republican, because I, I don't make that argument about despicable discourse, but if you stopping it at the local level is, um, is crucial, I think. All right. Well, uh, we will leave it there. Mary, thank you for this book. And thank you for joining us today to talk about it. Jenna, thank you. And thank you for all the work this podcast does, which I also think is important in terms of supporting democracy. Uh, great interview, Jenna, and I'm not going to get the image of the Klan picnic out of my head for uh, for quite a while. Uh, I, I wanted to pick up on uh, something that came up towards the end of the interview, where you were uh, where where you were talking a little bit about uh, whether or not this kind of language trickles down or trickles up or what goes on. And and Mary talked a little bit about local politics and boy, local politics uh, a week before election day here are uh, quite a sight. I am struck right now by the vitriol and the uh, the kind of discourse that we're seeing at school board meetings and local politics a little more generally, but really at school board meetings, uh, ginned up over issues, uh, you know, some real like mask mandates and whether or not mm-hmm. the kids have to wear masks or not. Uh, and some just, you know, completely created like around critical race theory and, mm-hmm. and other sorts of issues. And I mean, it, it struck me when listening to that interview, because we often think about local politics in a much more favorable way mm-hmm. and uh, as not quite as partisan, perhaps, uh, but also as a place where people cultivate democratic habits. And Mm -hmm. I mean, de Tocqueville talked about this and Dewey talked about this. Local governments are the schools of democracy. Uh, I know my my colleague Eric Plutzer and I wrote a book called 10,000 Democracies, where we Mm -hmm. talked about how school boards uh, were each, you know, a a small democracy. Some of them up in New England still run through town meetings, you know, that yet what we're seeing now is that people are learning at the local level a really maybe deplorable form of politics or certainly a kind of deplorable language. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, all, you know, obviously all of these things are endogenous. And I, I, I do think that this, uh, like the, the kind of nationalization of, uh, you know, questions around, uh, questions around um, relevant and accurate history of the United States. I, I do not want to say CRT because that is not what the debate is about mask mandates, about all of these things, right? We do see this kind of, I think you're right, it's not organic. There are plenty of examples of the nationalization of local and state government, right? For example, as you pointed out, the Heritage pointed out, like, excuse me, the Heritage Foundation having this National Tenure School Board Meeting Month or, you know, um, celebrating the Great Parent Revolt of 2021. Um, and similarly, we see kind of that copycat legislation across states, um, you know, but I, I think that also we see that there are signals sometimes from the local government and state governments that elites pick up on. And so, you know, uh, some of the ones that kind of have come to my mind are like Proposition 187 in California, which was an incredibly anti-immigrant, anti-Latinx policy. And congressional Republicans saw that a lot of Californians, Californians, were all good on that kind of stuff. And they took that as a signal. And we've seen just basically people run with that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is not my phrase, but uh, somebody referred to it as the politics of petulance. Mm. And I, I thought that was that was actually pretty good. It, it is. It's like a massive temper tantrum, but it's being directed in really dangerous and disruptive ways. And, and you know, returning to a point we were making earlier, the, these are the farm team's for national and state politics. This is where this is where your future candidates come from. They come out of town, they come out of town boards and they come out of school boards. Uh, so it's 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 significant what's what's going on there. Uh, and I and I think I, one thing I like about Mary's work here is it gives us I think a little different frame for thinking about what it is that's going on there in, in terms of the kind of rhetoric that's being used. The title of the book is The Worst Presidential Campaigns, right. not The Worst Presidential Elections. And yeah, yeah. I make this, I, I, I think that this is important to keep in mind that the campaigns, each of them have a great deal of power about how they're going to strategize. And so maybe we might see that one campaign is more decent than the other. So, so I guess my, I guess my, I guess the thing that I'm saying is, is that it's kind of like another campaign resource, right? The reason why people don't want go for the public option is because they know that they need the millions of dollars to beat their opponent. And in this case, fear and anger are also read as campaign resources. And so it is helpful uh, for the candidates to drum up those emotions, despite the fact that the long-term effects are negative for yes. everyone involved. Yes, especially if your campaign is one based on resentment. And, yes. Uh, right, a sense that somehow I'm being wronged, I've been left behind, other people are 
gaining the benefits now. And so riling up people about that is, is uh, obviously, yes, a resource. It's a strategy. So, so are we on a, um, are we on a glass half full or glass half empty ending today, Michael? Uh, why would we be glass half full today? I'm not, what, what did I miss? What, what was encouraging? And you never know. There's that. always some. There's always like some quick. Like maybe, maybe it could be okay. Maybe, maybe that's not today. No, I. You know, Mary's book. You, you know, when I was first reading the book, and I thought, oh, you know, so some campaigns are bad, and some campaigns are okay, mm-hmm. uh, where the rhetoric is really bad. But then as I started to think about what I'm really seeing at the school boards right now, uh, feels quite significant to me, mm-hmm. uh, that maybe we really are seeing a more kind of fundamental shift. And, you know, why that would be, whether it's technology, whether it's because Trump steps over lines and nobody else would before, or maybe it's because, you know, we had an insurrection and got away with it. There's nothing about this that makes me optimistic. And, you know, I, I usually am very sunny and. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I've been dreaming about is that people will just say that they've had enough. Mm. It's exhausting. Yes. It's exhausting to to go through the like this kind of stuff for four years. You know, we all kind of watched. All sorts of crazy things like we wake up and like see what's going to happen today. That's exhausting. I mean, I I just would like to believe that enough people do not want to keep living like that. Hmm. It's a nice thought. (laughs) but as you say you know it's effective and so i'm not quite sure that's how you know that's how those running these campaigns and running are necessarily going to see it and i think mary really does appropriately put much of the responsibility in the hands of the candidate uh, not the Mm -hmm. public well, if any yeah. of that happens, we'll talk about it on Democracy Works. Yeah. Ooh, excellent hour. Yeah. yeah. I have nothing to add after that. Uh, Jenna, thanks for a terrific. That was a terrific interview. Mary, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Democracy Works. I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Candace Watts-Smith. Thanks for listening.